0: The world is old and the powers are weary. The god at the door of night has fallen and the great enemy of the world has come back from the timeless void.
1: The shadow has awakened the great evils to regain dominion over Ardar. Darkness shall cover the land if not with the deeds of a small fellowship of elf friends. Join the players of this Dungeons and Dragons campaign as they fulfill the events of the Dagor Dagger of Prophecy and strive with Morgoth on the plains of Valinor. Welcome to the Undying Lands, in part three of the Inglorian Bastards trilogy, Trials of the Valor."
0: All right, welcome everybody to episode one hundred and thirty-five of the Inglorian Bastards podcast. With me tonight, I have Doug Anderson. Um, some of you will know him as Douglas A. Anderson. Uh, he is a, an American writer and editor. On the subjects of fantasy and medieval literature. He specializes in the textual analysis of J.R.R. Tolkien. And his first published work, if you can believe that this was his first published work, uh, book, was The Annotated Hobbit. Uh, which won the uh, Mythopaic Award in 1990. Um, and um, it, it, like a lot of my past guests here, he's an editor or was an editor of the Tolkien Studies Journal, but he was a founding editor of the Tolkien Studies Journal. So welcome to the podcast, Doug. Thanks for having me. Um I, I tried to cover briefly a little bit about you, uh, but now is um, sort of the time that I, that I ask our guests to to talk a little bit about themselves. Um, and of course the, the thing that our listeners are really going to want to hear about is, is, is how you came to, to Tolkien. What, what was the gateway drug for you for Tolkien? <laughs>
1: um, Back when I was 13, um, I was visiting my older sister who's nine years older than me. And, um, I remember it was the summer of 73, and I was bored out of my mind because there was nothing to do. And I kept looking at her bookcases and wandering around her apartment and and, and there was nothing. And so finally, at some point, um, she stomped in from the kitchen and she grabbed four volumes uh, of those Valentine editions of, Be- of The Hobbit and the three volumes uh, of Lord of the Rings with the Barbara Remington covers. And she thrust them at me and she said, here, read these. You'll like them. Now leave me alone. <laughs> oh. and, and I, of course, thought, oh, God, The Hobbit. You know, um uh, who would read? You know, who but my sister would like a book? the title like that. And of course the covers were not very, you know, um, uh, instantly appealing either. Um, if anyone remembers those Barbara Remington covers, oh, yeah. um, because they certainly don't rep as, as attractive as they are in some ways, they don't represent the books inside as others,
0: but every- Ted, Ted, Ted Naismith had some things to say about those books. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, so, so, um, when I was leaving then, um, to, to go home, um, she said, "Oh, you know, take them all." And I said, um, "I said, well, let me take the first two, and you know, because I didn't think I was going to like them." Um, my sister's taste at that point ran to Richard Brodigan's Revenge of the Lawn and things like that, which um, did not appeal to me then nor even now. Um, so I got home, and of course, I found I liked it, and um, I read them. You know, within a day, I read both, and sure. uh, and I called. I had to call her up and i said bring me the other two and she's like well i'm coming tomorrow and i'm like no bring them now (laughs) and and she did so um well those copies i literally read them to to pieces um you know more so um the first and second volumes as opposed to the third though i i did pretty um serious damage on the appendices but um (sighs) but the um Volume One. I don't know how many times I read from like Council of Elrond through the uh, Chap Moria chapters over and over and over again. Uh, appeals to me. Then when I was in high school, um, my freshman year in high school, the um, English department was running a big classroom where we had four teachers, and um, then it split off into some sort of separate groups, and um, they threw a bunch of plays on the table and said, "Oh, you're going to have to pick one," and um, and um, it out with your friends. And it was a bunch of Neil Simon plays, which um, I had a precocious disgust for Neil Simon back then. Um, and I didn't want to do any. So I, I said, well, and my teacher said, well, what do you what do you want to do? And I said, I want to do The Hobbit. And they said, well, there's no dramatization of it, which, of course, was a falsehood. But I didn't know that at the time. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they knew it either. So, um, um, but uh, I said, well, I'll write one. And so surely, that to humor me, they said, um, okay, if you write one, we'll let you do it. And so I wrote one, and we, my, me and my friends performed it for the class, and the teachers liked it so much, they um, arranged a group of us to um, tour all the elementary schools in the area.
0: Oh, man. Please and, tell me you have a recording of this somewhere.
1: Oh, God, no. God, no. <laughs> this was, would have been 1974. So, all right, no. all right. Um, I have a copy of the... The play itself, which I should burn before I die, <laughs> it's <laughs> it's remarkable only in the
0: sense that it was something that was begun and finished by a fourteen-year-old. So the Hobbit's been with you for a while. I mean, yeah, yeah, uh, that
1: was that was my first, and then from from there on, it was, um, you know, um, I fort- had the, you know, I, I wonder nowadays with, with someone, you know, coming to Tolkien and seeing, you know, this massive amount of scholarship and, and critical, uh, and, and Tolkien's own writings, all of, you know, none of the history of Middle Earth, none of the, not even the Silmarillion was published back then. So uh, I was one of the, the, the original group that was, was so, you know, excited to hear that the Silmarillion was actually coming out, you know, Mm -hmm. in 1977. I do remember, um, I remember seeing on the news would have been September of 1973. The, um, notice of the death of Tolkien. Because I, I I remember thinking, oh gosh, of course, here I find a writer I like, and he dies. Yeah. Um. But but my sort of I got to in a sense grow up with the, all of these new books as they came out, and um. So I did a, a you know a paper for my high school class on, I went I went to college, and, and after my first year, I um to summer program in Oxford. Um, which was, you know, um, way cool in many ways. Um, that was 1978, and um, I—that was my first introduction to fandom. And um, um, and I wrote to Humphrey Carpenter, Tolkien's biographer, sure. um, and asked if he would um, sign a copy of his book for me and just meet. And and he wrote back, yes. And so I remember I ran around all the stores of Oxford trying to find still a first printing of his biography. And I did find one, and I've got it, you know, to this day. Inscribed, oh, wow. It's described to me um, from, you know, in July of 1978. And, um, and we, we um, Humphrey and I got to know each other a bit, and we bumped into each other casually in Oxford a couple of times. After. And when I got back to um, the States, I sort of wrote him a thank you letter, and um, he wrote back and said um, he was just about to bark upon a, Biography of W. H. Auden, and he needed um, a research assistant in the U. S. Who would, um, you know, who could help him find people and things, um, and copies of articles and stuff. And would I be interested? And <laughs> and so I said sure. And and that was really my introduction to literary scholarship. And um, so I I um did a whole bunch of 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 work for him in that sense and and he came over um and we both went around New York City into some of the um archives in that and um and you know worked for a few days in that that would have been fall of 79 his Auden book I think came out in 81 but but at that point he'd started too doing the letters volume so I was he he asked me to help in ways on that and um so um It was through him and through work on the letters volume, because once he put it together, um, I'd I'd been to the Houghton Mifflin's archives in Boston and got to see their papers and their collection of stuff on Tolkien they had at the time. And I found some letters that they didn't have in the letters collection, one of which is the... um, It was a typed page from a 1938 letter from Tolkien that um, gave his description of The Hobbit. So I sent that and some other things to Humphrey, and he went, oh, great, we'll have to put that in. And so they did. Um, And he sent me a copy of the book, uh, the the manuscript as it was put together, and I sent a huge commentary on it. I don't know, it's been 20-some pages typed, you know, um, uh, and it went to him and to Christopher, just as, because um, I was asked as a as a sympathetic U.S. reader, but w- you know what might be explained or added, and and so over those three or four years, we got um, we worked a lot together, and and that was sort of my mentorship in literary scholarship in that. And he, after you know, he put me in touch directly with Christopher, and wow, probably about 1980, maybe 79, 80, something like that, and so you know christopher and i were in touch with her touch for many decades you know, his sad recent passing at absolutely yeah. but but my my interest in in Tolkien evolved in many ways over the years because um because um, you got, initially you get involved in the story you get involved in the details of the world and then my interests you know became you know with the background what were the full, sources. He was a professor of of studies of Anglo-Saxon and Norse. And so I got interested in them. And so I got interested in what was the fantasy tradition like before Tolkien? What were the books Tolkien read? Um, I got interested in publishing history. And Tolkien's um, own publishing history is Unique in many ways, in that there was the pirated edition of the Lord of the Rings published by Ace Books while Tolkien was still alive. And hmm. so, as I learned these new pursuits, I brought them and their interest to them. Um, when Humphrey and I were working on um, Auden book, um, there was a wonderful book by um, C. Bloomfield and Edward Mendelson called W. H. Auden: A Bibliography, um, a descriptive bibliography, and so. That was such a marvelous resource that I thought I want to do one like that on Tolkien. So I I started in on that about um, must have been eighty three or four, you know, and soon found that um, there was someone named Wayne Hammond who was doing the same thing. Yeah. So we basically combined our resources at that point. Um, When the book finally came out, it was um, I had I was still living in Ithaca, New York, which is where I went to college. And I worked at a bookstore and we'd just taken over um, me and another employee and one other person had just bought out the business and opened it up as a new one. And I was swamped. Um, and I basically said to Wayne, it's like, here, go for it. Write it up, you know, credit it, um, you know, as by you with my assistance. And that's that's what we, so that's how that came.
0: About. And which which book was that?
1: Um, J- the J.R. Tolkien A Descriptive Bibliography.
0: Okay, it was, yeah. came
1: out in ninety three.
0: I think it was. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and for the listeners, uh, Wayne Hammond, um, and I believe his wife is it Christina. Yeah. Um, they they've collaborated together on many Tolkien books, but probably they're most known for their Lord of the Rings and their Tolkien um, reader companions. Is that right?
1: That or the Art of
0: J.R. Tolkien.
1: Um, this was um, when Wayne and I worked on that book that was before he and christina were married she is british and wayne lives in
0: massachusetts well there's a ton of tolkien scholars here in massachusetts (laughs) (laughs) Uh, wayne and and mike and Corey's not far away Corey's not
1: far away yeah
0: yeah yeah well i i wanted to ask you um thank thank you for that. that was that was a wonderful story going back a little bit from 1993 um, and I guess forward in time a little bit from your, your work with, um, Humphrey Carpenter, um, in 1988, you published your, your first book, I I believe, right? The The Annotated Hobbit. Mm -hmm. Um, and I have, I have a copy here, um, of the, um, it's the, the revised and expanded edition, which you did, I think in 2002, right? Uh, It's a hardcover, beautiful book. And, um, so I, I was wondering um, if you could tell us more about how this book came to be.
1: That um, came, well, um, in um, in working, with, when I was working with Humphrey, I also got to know um, people at Houghton Mifflin. And um, I went there and visited their archives um, that were then in Park Street, you know, right up on the bottom. Oh, yeah. uh, they had a glorious old building there that, you know, um, was really historic with this, you know, creaky wire cage elevator that, and all these nooks and crannies that went off in various different places. You, find, you know, some, you know, this editor's little alcove and that, you know, it, it was a place with real character. But at any rate, I visited there and, um, and I got to know Austin Olney, who was um, the editor-in-chief and the uh, head of the trade and reference division. And one of the things that I'd um, I'd worked on was um, the fact that um, Tolkien himself had revised The Lord of the Rings, you know, as we all know, a, you know, a couple of times, but he <laughs> sent a, a bunch of um, revisions to the British volumes, to the British publishers that never got put in the American editions. And these came out in the, like, I... I I want to say second printing or third printing of the 1966 hardcovers. And then Christopher corrected a whole bunch of misprints in the 1974 printings. Um, So there was this, and and then there was a sort of errant branch that Tolkien sent revisions to the appendices of the Valentine edition because they were so sloppily printed, which added a few um, uh, details, which had sort of become legendary um, of, of, um, you know, amongst some talkiness, is like, where did they come up with, you know, Stella in, you know, in the family trees? Because it's not in any other edition except Valentine appendices. So what I did was, um, I suggested to Austin that we should fix up the American text and make them, you know, um, compatible, make them agree with the British ones. And, mm-hmm. uh, it became a sort of more involved process than you might imagine. But what, um, we were constrained in the 80s by um, how the production was done. And this was this affected my annotated Hobbit, too, of using films and photographs of, of existing texts, and, and they would um, make a new line and then paste it over in some way. So we had to do all of that with the corrections. Um, and, and similarly with the annotated Hobbit, I, I was sort of stuck with this um, um, rectangular format because the text of the Hobbit, Itself was reproduced photographically from the Uh then current, up to date books. So I had these sidebars and bottoms in which to add stuff. Um, which I was glad when you know when things had evolved by two thousand and two. At that point, the best text of The Hobbit was you know long been computerized, and we could merge it all into and make a much more sort of organic, flowing book. Hmm. But but the first project of any of it was to um, was to fix the text of the Lord of the Rings. And those were put in a printing of, it, it came out, I think, in early 1987. So, and I wrote the introductory note on the text to that, which that actually was my first publication. So ah. to, to write the note at the front of your favorite book <laughs> was was, um, was kind of nice. And, you know. And and then I was working away, and, and I knew, of course, that similarly um, Tolkien had um, had revised the text of The Hobbit, most notably the Gollum chapter, um, in which in the first edition Gollum um, wasn't quite merely the um, the self interested character he became in the later one. And um, so what I did was I had zero. I, I thought about suggesting a variorum edition um, to show here's the the first edition text was not easy to find. Um, back then um, it is since you know been the there have been facsimile editions published of the whole first edition text and um, and of course i put the text of the uh, of all of the variants in my annotated Hobbit. but the original mm-hmm. impo- impetus was to um, to possibly do a variorum edition so i took five editions of the book i photocopied them I taped them and pasted them together on these foot and a half by four foot sheets. And I took a ruler, literally, and read them across line by line. I had a bunch of colored pencils and highlighters that I marked, you know, and this text was, you know, corrected here with orange, and this one was blue corrected here, and this was removed in, in highlighted in green. Um, and, and went through all of that. And when I'd done all of that work, I realized that there really wasn't enough changes to justify a variorum edition. But certainly the changes were interesting and fascinating. So um, I happened to be talking to Austin Olney on the phone, and I, I said to him, I said, um, I said, Austin, but um, you know there really isn't enough to justify doing a variorum edition. So I was thinking there are lots of... Um, interesting things one can say about the hobbit otherwise Mm. and the 1988 is next year is the 50th anniversary of the american publication of the hobbit would you be interested in an annotated hobbit he just said oh that's great (laughs) and you know as as a publisher the idea of course is um you love to take anything that sells well and find a new way to sell it more and so um He's, you know, and that—that's how it started. Um, so I went in completely through the back door. Mm-hmm. Um, not, i not, it was not like I—I I wrote, you know, dear editor, and said, um, you know, I have this idea. So I was very fortunate in many ways. And things, of course, you know, went from there.
0: I have, I have another um, question for mm-hmm. you about this book. Um, so for for the listener, um, I will say that there's there's a lot in here, and it is it's wonderful. Um, th- just just if I can make a few notes here, um, there's there's notes on um, obviously different versions of the text. As you mentioned, there's probably I think I read over one hundred and fifty different pictures mm-hmm. um, in here from various cultures um, that have uh, published The Hobbit, um, which those are pretty interesting too, to see the different versions of like Bayorn or like, Gollum, something someone like that um it has uh, a thing that i find most interesting is the um the notes on where tolkien may have gotten uh, an idea for something like um for for example there is the um the ever famous postcard of of the german mountain man um yeah, and their it-
1: beargeist
0: yeah, um, Yes. Ex- exactly. Yeah. So this is, um, this is kind of w- that people are thinking this is where, um, I guess, uh, Tolkien may have gotten the idea for Gandalf with the big hat. Well,
1: that's, the- that was, um, that was the common wisdom, which began with, um. Humphrey Carpenter noted it in in the biography, where he says Tolkien preserved this um, this postcard and in an envelope onto which he had written origin of Gandalf. So we you know we all took him at his word, but um, when the third edition of the Hob- of the annotated Hobbit um, is finished and out, I, there will be a much longer explanation of that uh. that basically says no, um, because um, that. I, 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 Artist Joseph Medlaner um, painted those pictures that were made into postcards in the uh, around 1934. So it is chronologically impossible for Tolkien, oh. who had written the, the bulk of The Hobbit by 1932 and certainly several chapters um, by January 1930. Interesting, um, so, but he clearly. Uh, He he, there was one other instance where he used another postcard from that series of four postcards by Madlener that were was issued in Germany in 1934, where he sent something to one of his former students. Um, I mean, I think it's actually dated 34, 35. So so he must have gotten a set of those postcards and immediately recognized the impetus Mm -hmm. of. The Mountain Spirit, their Der Bergheist, um, and as as compatible with Gandalf and kept it, you know. Oh, so uh, so, uh, but but it it's um it's a nice story, but it's it's chronologically not possible.
0: Ah, you heard it here first, folks.
1: <laughs> <laughs> when I when I first did um, the annotated Hobbit, um, in, it came out in nineteen. 19- when I was 28. And the second edition came out, what, 14 years later? So I was yeah. 42. Um, and a tremendous amount of new material come out between 88 and 2002, um, which one has to account for um, if one is going to, you know, keep current in that sense. Also, one grows. I hope I knew a lot more when I was 42 <laughs> than I did when I was 28. The book itself the the annotations when i did the second edition the annotations and introduction in that all came out to be even more text than the hobbit itself <sighs> Hmm, that's interesting i didn't <laughs> know it's been quite that garrulous you know um but um there's one other thing about um the, the second edition of the annotated hobbit that um that i like to point out because most people don't seem to have noticed it is um Is as an appendix, I put the text of The Quest of Erebor, which was um, Tolkien's, in a sense, rewriting of The Hobbit as a chapter sized thing from Gandalf's point of view, um, that would have been, that was to be part of the appendices of The Lord of Rings, but got um, pulled out for reasons of space. Christopher first published that in Unfinished Tales, Mm -hmm. um, but um, he left out parts of it, um, and he let me. Publish the whole thing in the uh, annotated Hobbit. so you can read the whole oh, wow. text there. That that isn't in it. All of it isn't in um, isn't in unfinished tales. So that's a that's a nice point to to notice.
0: So so back to what I was going to ask you. I, I, I'm just curious after you know photocopying all of those things and you know <laughs> ma- making marks and going through two editions and possibly a third edition. It sounds like maybe someday. Um, does it does it change um your and, and granted you're you're a, you're an adult now but does it does it change your um your thinking or your enjoyment of your of the hobbit when you when you read it these days or you probably know it so well that you haven't read it in a while but i'm curious how that changes um you know because things like this the hobbit and the lord of the rings they they have become so much more than a story to so many people i mean do, do you look at them differently You have
1: to, I mean, it just from one's own personal growth and whatever. um, I read them so constantly from the age of 13, you know, for several years afterwards that they are, in a sense, completely part of my mental landscape. And and then you approach it, as I did not long afterwards, um, with such attention to the minutia of word choice and text. You also are reading it in a different way. Um, So, that um, when the movies came out, the the Peter Jackson films of The Lord of the Rings, um, that was the first one was 2001, and my second edition of The Annotated Hobbit came out in 2002. And so, I went around and I did this um, um, very fun slideshow about sort of the background history and the illustrations that had been done to The Hobbit, you know, in, as promotion for the book. Um, and what's nice about it is is the book itself, I couldn't use very many color illustrations, but in the presentation, I could use um, all sorts of whatever um, from whatever editions and whatever artists and, um, and mm-hmm. just, you know, um, and I could start at the beginning of the story and tell the story through visual images and show how, Story had been interpreted culturally around the world, as well as by artists varying from you know British artists like Alan Lee and John Howe, to uh, who were both involved with the films, to others like um, Eric Fraser did a very nice. Um, he mostly did chapter headings for the Folio Society edition of The Hobbit, which was in the early '70s. But there's there's a lot of quite quite interesting art that has been done over the times. So, um, you know, Frank Frazetta did a um, an illustration of Gollum that got put in a calendar in, in like 1973 or 74 or something. He's not um, someone you would usually think of as, as illustrating Tolkien. So, um, uh, But with that, the illustrations, you could see um, culturally how the book was, was accepted. And some of it even hinged on textual things because um, um, when Tolkien... Um, First translation was published um, was um, Hobbit was Swedish in the 50s. And then there were a few others. Oh, Portuguese was, I think, 62 and Japanese was 1965. And one thing with um, The Hobbit as a children's book, most foreign publishers were there, were interested in having sort of artists of their own culture interpret the story and publish illustrations along with it. Sure. Um, that was... Uh, Once the Hobbit itself became more acclaimed and well-known, that pretty much ceased after, you know, after Tolkien's death, after, you know, 1980s. Um, And and most foreign editions after that will have Tolkien's own illustrations, you know, color and black and white. Um, But what what you got to see in in some of the early illustrations was how... um, how Gollum was represented, and like the Swedish illustrations had this enormously huge rock-shaped Tolkien figure as Gollum, hmm. or or you know other ones that you know. So Tolkien himself who was sent copies of these, you know, uh, said something to the effect: "Gollum must not be made into a monster. He was hobbit-sized." And so, in the third edition of the text. 1966, Tolkien added a phrase, he says, you know, deep down there by the dark water lived old Gollum, period. That's the text how it read in 37 and 51. But he added, he changed that to a comma and then said, a small, slimy creature. So there you you had the effect going backwards of the illustrations, foreign illustrations, being done to The Hobbit that then caused a change by Tolkien into the text itself to clarify more.
0: Oh, man. I bet you have a thousand of these stories.
1: (laughs) Oh, I have. And I have
0: the, the, um, I call it the Hobbit illustration pool.
1: I've got so many of them that, well, of course, it used to be a slideshow that I carried around, you know, three or, you know slide re- reels with you know full of them all in order but um now since then i basically have them all scanned and on computer and um when i get asked to do these um these talks i basically say how long do you want <laughs> but it's but it's nice too because um because uh, oh 10 years ago um some uh, new recording had been discovered of you know an outtake of of Tolkien reading um one of the poems from the hobbit um um, singing it to a song, and no one knew that. Ship the wagons and crack the plates. That's what Bilbo Baggins hates. My know kids know, love he, that one. and and there it was, Tolkien himself singing it to a, a an old folk tune that we didn't know beforehand. And so I could um, you know, I had downloaded that from where it was on on um the Harper Collins had it on their website, so I could play that slideshow where the um know and and say here's Tolkien himself sitting. But
0: well, it sounds like you um, came on the scene at the right time you know you kind of grew up with these things as the originals came out. And,
1: oh and, uh, and especially with like the scholarship and all of Christopher's books because you know you think um, I, I said this to um, Dimitri Femi it must be gosh 15 years ago, we've known each other that long now, but but she was just coming up, you know, had, had come to the medievalist Congress for the first time and gave a presentation. And, and we were chatting afterwards and I said, just you know, how then even in 2004, 2005, how did she manage to count of stuff? Um, because it must, it must seem daunting. Um you know whereas to me i was waiting eagerly for a new book almost every year you know uh, of christophers and um and all of the scholarship on top which you know i would devour as soon as i got my hands on it but to be faced with you know um such an opus and and she said basically well i set a goal 50 pages a day and i kept to it and it's like okay i can i can see how how one would do that but it it must be uh, uh scary to um you know, as much as one, you know, figuring someone now at, you know, 15 or 20 um, reads Tolkien, Hobbit, Lord of the Rings and and then wants to do more. And it's like faced with where do you go from there? Part of part of what I how I viewed what I was doing with the annotated Hobbit was um, I wanted to take a characteristic Tolkien text and show ways to approach it visually. Via Tolkien's own, you know, medieval sources; via his modern sources; via um, his own artwork, his writings for children. Everything I wanted it to be a sort of a gateway into how to um, how to approach and read Tolkien. And and um, I, I was asked a, n- a number of times um, why didn't I go on and do annotated Lord of Rings? And you know, Christopher even asked. Months, and I said, well, um, um, to me, that would have been redo- doing the same thing again. It yeah. didn't really interest me. It would, it would have been great on terms of the minutia and the, you know, and the, the study of the uh, of the evolution of the text of Lord of the Rings. But as a overarching concept of, of, of ways to approach Tolkien, I'd already done it. You no, know, with the hot with the annotated Hobbit. So, um, so I said no every time
0: I was asked. <laughs> well, can can I ask uh, about something else that you've written? Um, if uh-huh. we could, if we could fast forward, um, from the se- the second edition of the annotated Hobbit, or I should call it the revised and expanded edition. Um, so we it was called AH two. Well, we. <laughs> Um, you, you came out with something called "Tales Before Tolkien: um, The Roots of Modern Fantasy," and this this actually touches on something that Mike Drought and I talked about. Um, how how Tolkien wasn't necessarily the the first person to have um, invented languages in, in his book, or he wasn't the first person to have fictional maps in his world or appendices, but he, he was kind of the person to put together the first prototype fantasy novel with all of those aspects.
1: That was about the easiest idea I'd ever sold to a publisher was I'd had this idea for, for some time, um, sort of been accumulating things for it. Um, and um, I was working in a bookstore then. And I, of course, I've, I've done a lot of work, which you'll see on my blogs um, over the years on um, the Valentine adult fantasy series, which um, ran from 69 to 74 and published about 70 odd um, fantasy titles. It was It was this thing that sort of defined what fantasy literature was for the generation just before me and my generation. Um, and so I, I wanted to approach Ballantyne who had been the publisher of that. Um, and I asked my sales rep for Ballantyne who called, I was the book buyer at a bookstore and I asked him, I said, um, oh, do you know the editor Betsy Mitchell well enough to, to ask if she'd be interested in seeing a proposal on this? And, and he said, oh yeah, sure. So I sent it to him he sent it to Betsy. And, um, and my idea for the book, the title was Roots of the Mountain, uh, fantasy before Tolkien. Oh, it's a good title. I like, and, that and the marketing department nixed it and they wanted, of course, Tolkien in the, um, in the primary part of the title, which, well, you know, it makes sense. And they yeah. submitted I don't know, three or four alternatives, um, which the least awful of which was tales before Tolkien. So I <laughs> took that. I, I said, okay, that, that I can accept. And, um, and the the roots of modern fantasy was not my um I, and they put some other blurb on the the cover that says the works that inspired Tolkien and um so a bunch of the reviewers said well um there's only some you know <laughs> titles in here that inspired Tolkien and it's like well um that's what I said in my introduction and that was you know I didn't so what. The editor or the author is not always responsible for how their book is presented to the public, but um, I think they did a nice job presenting it. Otherwise, but it, it's a little bit of misdirection in, in defining what it was. But one when, when sees, you know, various strange things in, as one gets reviews of things. I remember, I remember one of the first reviews um, took me for task for including some really common Lewis Carroll story. And There's no Lewis Carroll story in the book, none whatsoever. <laughs> you know, and it's like, which book did you, you know, what do we know? So you wonder, you know, it's like, did, you know, how much of of, of uh, uh, you know do viewers actually read of books? But um, but uh, a copy found its way to um, Michael Moorcock, um, and he um he loved it, and he gave me a wonderful blur. And I, if you know Moorcock, he um uh, as a uh, I'm sure you know him as a fiction writer because he's hugely prolific. <laughs> um, but he also um, was was uh, marked himself out as a famous Tolkien basher for writing this essay called Epic Pooh in oh.
0: 1978,
1: in which he knocked Tolkien and, um, and uh, of course, Winnie the Pooh as being, you know, sentimental drivel. Um, and so he's, he's taken pleasure over the years as a Tolkien basher, but, um, but he gave me a wonderful blurb for it that they put on the mass market paperback of the Tales Before Tolkien. So I take um, a perverse pride in having a
0: Michael Moorcock blurb on my oh, Tolkien-related geez. book. Well, um, could I, um, I want to ask you one thing that I'd mentioned before that we haven't touched on um, was your um, involvement in the Tolkien Studies Journal. Uh-huh. Um, I was wondering if you could, um, ha- can you talk about sort of how that came to be? And Mike told a little bit about how he, you know, f- found sort of the at West Virginia University, how he talked to someone there and how sort of the journal came to be, but how, how you became involved with it. Maybe.
1: Well, well, I've got, i got to know Mike first via, you know, mail or email because um, he was working on the mail from the critics. And. We met for the first time at one of the medievalist Congress that's every year in Kalamazoo here. And one of the things I said to him was, you know, I I said, I've long wanted to do a journal, Tolkien studies. And I said, but I can't do it on my own because I'm an independent scholar. I'm not affiliated with any academic institution. Um, And it would need to be done with someone, you know, to have that academic credibility and he said i've been thinking the same thing let's do it and (laughs) and so we talked and 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 came up we should have a third person and we both immediately said verlin flieger um so that's how it got born it was out of you know conversation and um we tried approaching a number of publishers who most of them had very standoffish no we won't do that not interested Um, um, and, and Mike knew, um, the head of West Virginia University Press, who was Pat Connor, um, who was a nice fellow and an Anglo-Saxon scholar, so Mike knew him from professional reasons, and, and somehow they were just chatting, probably at another medieval, at other, another medieval Congress about something, and, and Pat was saying, oh, we, we want to get into doing some more journals, and, and, um, and Mike said, "Well, by the way, would you, <laughs> yeah. would you be interested in a Tolkien studies?" And Pat said, "Sure." So that's how how it came about with um, with West Virginia University Press, and um, I was involved with it for the first nine volumes. And um, Pat left after I don't know, I think after about eight volumes, and they got a new director. And um, it had been fun and good working with Pat, but. Um, I had difficulties with the new director. Um, I've written about it on my blog when this happened in a, in a post called publishing Mordor style, but basically (laughs) the, um, I, I, I mostly served as book review editor on Tolkien studies, um, which meant I solicited reviews from people and arranged to get them books and got review copies, et cetera. Um, and I was supposed to get reimbursed for my expenses for them. Um, Uh And um, you know, and they accumulate. You know, you send one book to um, to someone in England to review, and it's thirty six bucks. You know, so I had you know a small number of hundreds of dollars that was owed to me, and I'd saved all the receipts, and I sent them to West Virginia University Press, and they wouldn't pay me anything, and they wouldn't reimburse anything. And on top of the fact that um, academic publishing is basically a scam, in that they pay nothing, anyways. Um, so all of the work that Mike Berlin and I had done, and all our reviewers and all our contributors, was you know basically for free, so that um, the publishers could make in fees that they get for making the stuff available via library subscription databases, and particularly Project Muse, uh-huh. which they get lots of money for, and then and then this new director who wouldn't, um, wouldn't pay, repay my expenses. I just said, that's it. I'm done. And, um, and within, as soon as word got out that I was out, I was approached by three different entities wanting to start up a new Tolkien journal. Um, one of which I won't name the publisher, but, um, basically wanted me to do the exact same thing as I did with West Virginia University Press for no money whatsoever. And I told them why I had quit West Virginia University Press and I never heard them from them again. Um, but um, Brad Eaton was uh, was one of the other people who was thinking about, start, you know, for similar reasons, about starting an online, open access, free academic peer-reviewed journal, which um, so I was invited and accepted to become the book review editor of that. So I'm doing basically the same thing as I did at Tolkien Studies, um, but nobody's making money off of it. And oh. I, you know, and would, it's it's would called that. the Journal of Tolkien Research. It's um you can do a, a Google search and it'll turn up. There's it started in 2014. There are I don't know. I, it, 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 what's one of the things that's nice about it is an article gets accepted and it's published within a few days and it's oh, wow. free and anyone on the web can, can, um, get it. And, you know, we get to see stats of who's, um, who's accessed it. And, and well, not, not who personally, but just, um, what, where the articles were accessed from. So when I see something that, um, that says, uh, you know, within a day of something, being published that someone downloaded it from um for example san jose california i think oh that must have been david Bratton yeah. or i see it <laughs> some other place where it's a small town of somewhere you know where i know someone else who lives i said oh good you know so so and so has seen that you know um but but i've done the book reviews for that and weren't though and and it it basically every six months or five or six four, six months um it Cranks over to a new volume. So there's, uh, um, and I think it's volume nine is what we're in now. We're probably in volume nine, issue two wow. is what will come up. But there's a little drop down um, menu at the left where you can go to any one of them. And um, I've got a, an index to this stuff published, um, uh, an index to like the first five volumes published in volume six. And there will be a new index. Shortly, in the in the most recent one, once I finish adding the last things, so you can you know see what is what has been reviewed there, who the reviewers was, and what articles have been there. And there are some. Um, uh, there's a section of. Are of conference papers, which are not peer reviewed, which are just stuff that um, people um, have presented at conference and they want to get out there, and they would be happy you know um, if people commented on them, so um, they're made publicly available that way. But it's a it's an interesting venture, and I hope um, interested pe- you know, people interested in it will support it.
0: Well, I will I will definitely include a link to the Journal of Tolkien Research. Um, in, in the description of this, of this episode. So people can check it out. Um, can you, have mentioned your blog a few times. So I, I just, I, I wanted to list that here. And i also include that it's, um, Tolkien and fantasy.blogspot.com. And you've been doing that. Uh, I've, I've gotten a few dates and names wrong during this interview. So I, I apologize, but I believe you started your blog in 2011. Oh, or, that could be. Yeah. I, I,
1: I have, um, I have enjoyed blogging in various ways. The first blog I was part of, and and I'm still part of, is um, one called Wormwoodiana. And um, for about 15 years, there was, well, it's still going. There's a journal, a uh, UK journal called Wormwood, that specializes in um, supernatural and decadent literature. And I had a column there called Late Reviews um, in, I don't know, the first 30 some issues of it. It came out twice a year. Um, and I collected the columns in a book a couple of years ago called obviously late reviews where I had carte blanche to review any weird obscure book that I wanted to, um, and sort of frame it in the sense of what's good about it. What, what works, what doesn't, whatever I wanted to say about it. And it gave me a chance to, um, write about all of these obscure things that most people wouldn't have seen or um, or put into different perspective. A lot of these um, these obscure titles, like um, one of which I reviewed at one point is called um, The Word of, of Terrigor, um by um, someone named Guy Ridley. It came out in 1914. Well, basically it's a sort of creation. It's a smallish book. It's a kind of creation myth about these trees that are mobile and walk around in a forest and ah. gather together in moots.
0: Interesting. One,
1: one of the trees is named Entith. Huh.
0: There's there's
1: no indication that Tolkien himself would have read had read this, but it was published by an Oxford graduate in 1914 when Tolkien was at Oxford. So if it got any contemporary publicity, he might have heard about it, or he you know he might have seen it, and so you know, it. it I think it would have interested him. And so um, when, I view, when I view my blogs, and there are, I do about, I don't know, seven or eight different ones on different subjects. Um, the Wormwoodiana, the Tolkien and Fantasy is obviously about fantasy, and it's sort of the main one. But if you go to that one, there are links to the other ones. There are a few... Um, fairly obscure authors that I particularly have specialized in that have their own pages. Um, Kenneth Morris, a fantasist, and Leonard Klein is another one. And I do a blog called Shiver in the Archives, which has to do with um, just weird, unusual research discoveries I've made. Hmm. Um, um, you know, and, um, so, so that's the kind of thing, but, but I, I like, the blogs because it gives a chance to there's a lot of times when something you're working on you stumble across something that's interesting it's not worth an article um or 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 it depends highly on an illustration that you know you can't get um printed if you did an article on it um but you can put up a blog post and show the illustration and give a little bit of text to it and um you know, so it's, it's sort of, uh, I view them as a sort of secondary way to, um, communicate to people about my interests. um, I don't, I don't think them as, as that formal or, um, or intimidating in any way. And it's nice to get feedback because sometimes of, um, I do, I do one that's sort of the, one blog is called lesser known writers where, um, when I've, and interested enough in an author to learn more than just the one book I might have read for late reviews, I will do genealogical research and post some um, stuff about this author, um, what else they did, and, um, you know, pictures of dust wrappers and pictures of the authors themselves, if I can find them. Um, and what's nice is, is it gets it gets the information out there. And if, if people, I I can't tell you how many times I, I've been doing that for probably close to 10 years too. Um, I can't tell you how many times I will get an email or, um, or a comment in the comments field saying, "It's so nice to see that you've written something about grandfather's books or mother's books or yeah. so and so's books." And and sometimes they will say, um, "Do you know about this other thing?" Oh you no, know, he wrote this under a pseudonym. Oh oh, and I'm able to fill out more and sort of add more to the public knowledge about you know these these people. Oh, and sometimes no. sometimes this you know I'm able to reprint the stuff. You know, um, of, of some of the, the authors that I like and, um, you know, and, and, you know, in a sense, one one you know, tales before Tolkien, um, um, you know, was was a way of doing that before, you know, I had um, had a blog, you know, and of course I could do longer things. But I but one of the one of the other things I did was um, Mark Hooker discovered this very strange little poem about an orc that was in an American children's magazine in about 1950. I read no, this one no reason Tolkien would ever have seen it, but it's it's got its own illustrations and and it's about an orc very Gollum-like um in both visuals and in the details. So I, I put that up and and it's fun, you know. It's um, um it it adds a sort of dimension to um to discourse that um, that you otherwise don't have you know because um and I, I I found blogging rewarding I don't actually do social media um I, I'm not on Facebook or Twitter or any of those things I just found, I I tried them and I found them too distracting yeah. in the sense that you either have to participate in them daily or not at all um because it's not like you can skip them from a week and go catch up you just can't you know, yeah. and I f- I found that you know rather unrewarding. So um, you know um, so blogs. Sometimes I'll go months without posting on one blog, and sometimes I'll I'll finish up three things and I'll post um two or three days apart. You know, it, it but it's it's um I don't view it as anything other than um, an occasional you know fun sort of thing. Sure. But I, and I get enough feedback that I that then I do know that people appreciate it. And that's always nice.
0: Well, I actually read that article on, on the Orc and that was on Tolkien and com. But I, I'll put, um, I'll put some of the others, uh, the, the web addresses uh, in the description here. Well, um, Doug, I've kept you for about an hour. Um, I want to ask you one question from um, that's related to to the story for the main part of our podcast, um, and, and this is the this is the chance for for my guest to kind of just talk about what is possible, right? It, uh, or or. Opinions and, and a lot of times scholars are uncomfortable with that, but but I find that sometimes they're the most interesting part of the podcast, right? Um, uh-huh. Other than follow, uh, you know, finding out more about a scholar that you love, um, the listeners l- love to hear all of these 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 theories, um, and so so these are the this is the the chance to sort of flush these things out and really get into the nitty gritty of of um, various aspects of the story. And um so your episode uh, episode I think I said 135 is going to air uh sometime in early July and it's and it's going to be right before our characters um go to what what's left of Thangorodrim. you know and you might be asking yourself well how is that possible um well in a, in our story we're talking about um the Dagor Dagoreth um the second prophecy of Mondos uh prophecy that which was you know uh apocryphal writing right uh. like uh, things that maybe tolkien hadn't ever really flushed out or, or decided to to make canon um but um oh, canon canon is a um, <laughs> highly disputable. <laughs> yeah. Well, so 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 this in this um, there you know as a plot device, one of our um, one of the bad guys was a was a Maiar who worked essentially for Morgoth, who was able to bring people back from the dead, and 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 that was a way for our characters to really get to meet some of the uh Ancaligons and the Turin turin and and it, from a story standpoint, it was really cool to sort of start in Middle Earth proper, and as the story progressed, I essentially went back. In time to bring these these colorful characters and in, in these places to life, um, and so they're um, one of the trials of the Valar, um, which is the third part of of our, of our storyline. They're doing a trial that that involves essentially going to Thangoradrim um, or what's left of it. And so, so I guess the question I have for you, we, we, we know that Thangoradrim um, we know that Ancalagon essentially landed on the volcanoes, all right, which supposedly destroyed it. Um, And, and we know that Thangoradrim was in Angband. um, uh, And, and we know that, that most of those lands, um, and you can tell me if I'm, if I've got any of this wrong, but most of these lands, um, are under the waves, right? Are under the water right. after, the, after the breaking of the world. Uh, and so I guess my question for you would be more of like, hypothetically, we have all of these, these Tol uh, uh, um and there's a few other islands sort of off the coast of that was once Balerian, right? Um, these high places, even mental tarma, um, they, they say is, you know, People can see Metal Tarma, right? Um, the high point of. And New I, I think I think was it Himling later
1: called Himring is is on Christopher's map.
0: Yes, exactly, exactly. You and know. so and so these are the place. And so I guess my question for you would be: um, in, in a place that really was as large as Thangorodrim was, with three volcanoes, you know, is, is this is this possible that that there was some part of Angband um, that that was still sort of there and that people could visit?
1: I'm you know of course, as you know artistic license to um to say anything in that sense um but I don't see why not I mean you could you could posit that someone raised what was left of it another ah, no interesting um um so it wouldn't have to have necessarily remained you know subsurface it was um what a three peaked mountain basically so um the person to, sadly, the person who would be most interesting to respond on this would be Bill Sargent. Um, he wrote a piece, Geography of Middle Earth, in myth lore, which probably in the mid-90s, I'd say. Um, but I think I'm remembering right, it, it mostly covered um, third-age stuff rather than first-age stuff. But but Bill was a professional um, geologist and quite renowned. His, in his field and he um, though he was british in origin he was a professor in saskatchewan mm-hmm. um, and he also was a fantasist he wrote um, um as anthony swithin which was his two middle names he was william anthony swidgen sergeant s-a-r-j-e-a-n um um and he wrote um four volume series of his own fantasy came out in the early 90s and suffered because uh, of course a uh, publisher got acquired after the first volume by another publisher after the first and his editor got sidelined and basically they went through the motions of publishing and dumped him um but uh, there are in the works three issues of 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 them and and some of the ones he didn't publish but finished before he died um are supposed to come out starting this fall i believe but anyways that's getting off the point um um i don't remember if Karen Wynne Fox, she might have had something about, but um, uh, about at least in locale and stuff, but I, I don't really see any reason why one couldn't posit that it, it does, in fact, survive in some way and can be reused.
0: Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, I, you know, what's great about these sort of crazy conversations that we have with scholars is that, you know, there, there is no real answer, but the, the, the idea, right. and, you know, the, the breadth of knowledge that you have, like for our listeners to be able to go now and Google Bill Sargent, right? Like that's, I think that's what makes these interviews really interesting because that's exactly what's happened to me in, in interviewing these people. You know, I, I started, you know, interviewing, um, uh, game designers for, um, uh, the adventures in middle earth uh for d and d and for you know lord of the rings online and and the more they talked the more that you know they mentioned the you know, Corey Olson's and the, uh, Mike droughts and that's sort of, and then Mike drought mentioned you and, you know, you know, so like this uh-huh. is, this is exactly how you, you go down that rabbit hole. And I, and I think yep. that's what makes it interesting. Oh, and
1: rabbit hole is, it is. And it's fun too. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, th- well, thank you. Um, and I, and I will, I just, I, I want to ask you one more question and this is about, sure. this, this is sort of the, uh, quintessential question that will, um, that I always end with. And that is like, what, yeah. what do you have coming up that you're excited about, um, that, that the listeners might be interested in
1: oh i'm on bunches of things including uh bird annotated hobbit which, um, got side sidetracked that's not the right word i got s- ceased the summers ago because of um, had a lightning strike near my house right close by and it blew out a bunch of the electrics in my house and fried my computer it was major major drawback and you know i'm i, I working normally again. But uh, but there is one thing that um that's that should be out sometime I hope this summer that um came up last year is um we talked a bit about Mythopiaic Society. They um um they have um conference every year and last year the was the 50th anniversary. Um so they decided to do a selection of guest of honor speeches. And um I had been the scholar guest of honor back in nineteen ninety nine. And again in 2013, and my 1999 talk was, um, I never offered it for publication because I sort of thought it was kind of, you know, um wasn't scholarly, it was more just sort of a, a fun sort of thing. Um, so my 2013 one is, is presently available quite easily in myth lore, and it's coming out in a collection that Leslie Donovan is editing. Um, I'm not sure when it's supposed to come out, I, I, I imagine, um, and the covid probably delayed everything so maybe this summer maybe this fall or something but it'll it, you know i i had for, for that congress i did a um i did a republic reading with friends of a kenneth morris play called the arch druid and um i did a essay for the program book called my 10 or so favorite you know fantasy fantasies forgotten fantasies Mm-hmm. Um so I put them up on my academia.edu page, both the archdruid druid and my um my essay which um which is sort of, you know, the signal to go look at academia is in the book that hasn't been published yet, but a bunch of people have found it and downloaded it, so downloaded them, so you know, maybe your interests might might be um in that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. In other
1: words, I work on I work on things and um I don't usually talk about stuff in progress, but once it's um once it's, it's imminent, I can talk about
0: it. Well, I will keep my eyes open for all of those things. Um, well, thank you so much for coming tonight. It's been, it's been a lot of fun. Okay. Thanks very much. Good night. Right. Though this marks the end of the episode, the road goes ever on. Until next time, join us at longwinded.one and consider giving us a review on Apple Music, Spotify, or really whichever platform you choose.